Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014 sparked an old worry about Russian expansionism in the small Baltic states of Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. We take a look at the kind of old-school spycraft that's still going on there to root out Kremlin agents. And roll out the pink carpet. Wildly popular American show about drag queens will soon launch in Britain. Our correspondent heads to a drag-based trade show, finding that the genre is sashaying into the mainstream, providing entertainment most of all for young women. But first... Protests in Hong Kong have entered their 13th straight week. Over the weekend, demonstrators threw petrol bombs during a banned rally. Police responded with tear gas and water cannon. Then the territory's transport network was targeted. Train stations were attacked, where police used truncheons and pepper spray on protesters. Yesterday, thousands of black-clad demonstrators blocked trains and roads leading to the territory's airport. Riot police stopped them from entering the terminal building. While talk has turned to China's mainland authorities possibly sending in the troops, Hong Kong's government does have other cards up its sleeve. All this began in opposition to a controversial extradition bill that has long since been suspended. Now, a broader pro-democracy movement has taken hold. This weekend's protests in Hong Kong have differed from those of the previous few weeks in a a number of important ways. James Miles is our China editor. One is that protesters uh, applied to hold a demonstration in central Hong Kong, as they have done in the past uh, on several occasions, a large-scale protest. The police denied them permission to hold this protest. Uh, That was unusual. In the past, they have given permission. And then what has flowed on from that have been illegal, unauthorized protests by a smaller number of these demonstrators, sometimes involving violence. So this time, the whole thing uh, was uh, was banned, uh, and the protesters called off uh, the demonstration. But but many people, um, clearly thousands of them, uh, were still willing to take part anyway. Another important difference was that the tactics used by the police to control these uh, protests. We saw water cannon being used extensively with blue dye in the water in order that the police would be able to identify demonstrators more readily. Uh, We also saw uh, shots being fired in the air as a warning by the police. And we also saw uh, protesters frequently throwing Molotov cocktails um, and setting fire 
uh, to piles of uh, garbage and other things. Um, so quite a scene of, uh, of mayhem, chaos and uh, violence associated with what originally had been called as, as a large-scale peaceful rally. And so clearly Hong Kong's government would like to quell these protests. What options does, does it have? Well, this is a subject now of, of intense speculation in Hong Kong. Uh, we've seen already, of course, uh, the Chinese authorities hinting darkly at the possible next move, which might be the deployment of Chinese mainland forces in, in Hong Kong. Uh, so we've seen Chinese paramilitary police uh, staging maneuvers on the border with Hong Kong, references, oblique ones, never very explicit uh, by the Chinese authorities, to, to the possibility that uh, the uh, Chinese army garrison uh, in Hong Kong might uh, be uh, deployed to, to help control this. But it seems that based on what uh, pro-Communist uh, Party uh, publications in Hong Kong are saying, uh, they see this as still something that can be controlled by the Hong Kong government itself. A next step that many pro-party newspapers in Hong Kong are calling for uh, is the invocation of emergency regulations uh, in Hong Kong, which would give the local government sweeping powers uh, to control unrest. It would give them the power to, to stop newspapers from publishing certain things, uh, to um, control the use of social media. It would give them uh, much bigger powers of arrest um, uh, and so on. This uh, kind of emergency uh, law has not been invoked since uh, uh, riots in Hong Kong in 1967. So it would be a very difficult move uh, by, the, by the Hong Kong government, a hugely controversial one, uh, but clearly one I think that um, China is now eager for the Hong Kong government uh, to consider very actively at least. And beyond that, if that doesn't work, uh, well, then uh, the worst case scenario does emerge, um, the deployment of Chinese forces, whether paramilitary police or the army. But it seems at every stage when Hong Kong's government has uh, exerted its authority, has tried to uh, to bat back the protesters, the protesters just keep coming. The, the protests become seemingly more violent at every stage. How would they respond to something that is more explicitly sort of crimping the freedoms that they're they're fighting for here? Well, well, that's the difficulty. Uh, everything that the government does uh, results simply in an escalation of these protests. Um, and this will be um, a, a, another week of considerable tension in Hong Kong. Today, uh, protesters have called for uh, a general strike, for students to boycott classes. And of course, students are now coming back to class after a long summer holiday. Again, uh, there is an expectation that there will be a further uh, larger scale protests at, at, at the weekend. So it's extremely difficult to see how the Hong Kong government can extricate itself from this and begin to calm things down. Um, it um, has made it absolutely clear it's not willing to make any concessions to the protesters' demands. And uh, so the cycle of tension and violence continues. And what about the the sort of the interface, the, the distinction between the protesters and the sort of the more general public who who certainly enjoy the freedoms that they have but are perhaps not... As active, is there is there a tension between the the protesters and this escalation and people who don't want to see that kind of violence on their own streets? Well, this this is the extraordinary thing. It had been expected a long time ago that uh, this protest movement uh, would lose public support to, to a considerable extent as a result of the use of violence and vandalism by demonstrators. In fact, what we've seen has been well. It's very hard to gauge, but 
At any rate, many members of the public express outrage, not so much at the violence used by protesters, but at that used by the police. And again, over over the weekend, there was outrage over an incident involving Hong Kong police entering the carriage of an underground train and beating people who they seemed to suspect were protesters. That caused fury and and appears to have been one one factor that that fueled the unrest over the weekend. So, no, we're, we're in sort of uncharted territory as far as public opinion is concerned here. Thank you very much for coming in, James. Thank you. Seven in ten full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. Here's the truth about AI. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people. Blackmail operations using compromising pictures. Beautiful spies used as honeypots to shift allegiances. Propaganda shiftily handed from person to person on orders from bosses across the border. This kind of spycraft sounds like the stuff of pulp novels or of the Cold War, but it's exactly the kind of thing that's still going on in the Baltic countries of Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia. Following Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014, officials in the Baltics worry about further Russian aggression. They aren't necessarily expecting a military incursion, because it's clear that there are Russian spies in their midst. We spoke to Benjamin Sutherland, who writes about technology and defense for The Economist, about the kind of puppet master tactics that Russia might devise. Imagine a scenario in which uh, the Kremlin instigates a motorcycle gang in Estonia to uh, riot following a rumor that an ethnic Russian girl has been raped. Because the Kremlin has asserted a right to protect ethnic Russians living outside its borders, they might be able to then send in troops saying we have to do that in order to restore calm. That's a scenario that was studied at the White House, according to Stephen Flanagan, a a RAND official who was formerly a National Security Council official studying that scenario. Okay, but is there any reason to suspect that that Russia wants to concoct such a scenario, a a pretext for, for sending in troops? There's a number of danger signs, including the fact that Kremlin mouthpieces have said that parts of Lithuania actually belong to the Soviet Union and were gifts from Moscow years ago and therefore rightfully belong to Russia. And that's exactly what Russia said regarding Crimea, and they used that to justify the seizure of Crimea in 2014. So if the Baltic states wanted to avoid a similar fate, can they learn anything from that annexation of Crimea? 
yes and no. The officials stress they don't know exactly how Russia would uh, try and pull it off. Some think they would try different techniques than the ones they used in 2014. But uh, they are certainly on edge and uh, doing everything they can to try and figure out who might be on the Kremlin side, either out of political sympathy or because they've been blackmailed in one way or another by the Kremlin. So they have been actively upping their defenses since the, the annexation of Crimea. Yes, the Baltic states have been upping their defenses since uh, Crimea was uh, taken in 2014. And in fact, one official I spoke with said that their efforts have probably multiplied about tenfold to figure out who Russian agents might be. And who might they be? Who, who are the, the, the kinds of people who might be Russian operatives? Well, the biggest category are people they call supporters, people who, for various reasons, are willing to support the Kremlin, perhaps by passing along propaganda, but without necessarily taking many active measures. But a, a smaller and more dangerous category of people are, are what they call potential doers. These are the people who might riot, who might take other disruptive action in the event of orders from the Kremlin. And so how would those officials in the Baltics go about trying to, to spot either category? Well, there's a lot of different ways to do it. The intelligence officials are cagey about describing the types of signs they're looking for, but they do refer to looking for tattoos, certain types of clothing and dress styles, even certain types of haircut, certain types of language use. These Signs, of course, don't indicate necessarily a problem, but they help the officials kind of orient their attention where they may be able to find other types of information that would suggest there's a problem. But the people who have these tattoos or give away these, these language cues and so on, are they from the Baltics? I mean, what support might the Kremlin have in this region in the first place? Well, a number of them are from the Baltics. Some of them are Russians who have moved into the Baltics, which, of course, are in the European Union, and there's a higher standard of living than Russia. For starters, some of them are supporting the Kremlin out of uh, emotional political reasons. That's probably a minority. It's likely that there's a larger percentage of people who have been blackmailed, either with uh, honeypot operations where compromising pictures have been taken of them with a beautiful woman. There's a number of bolts that go across the border to Belarus or in Russia to purchase gasoline and cigarettes, which are cheaper there, and to sell them back home. The intelligence officials know who these people are when they cross the border and can approach them. They also obviously know that they're short on money, can offer them money in exchange for information. But this kind of blackmailing and honeypots, this all sounds sort of cloak and dagger Cold War stuff in an era when what we mostly hear about Russia's efforts abroad to have to do with, you know, cyber war and uh, naughtiness on social media platforms, all this seems pretty outdated. Well, I don't think it is, and the officials are insisting it's not. I think that, you know, the cyber operations, social media operations are continuing, but Russia sees this as kind of keeping their pawns in place, and who knows if they'll need it. It's not obviously clear what's going to happen, but they see this as kind of an insurance policy. It worked very well for them in Ukraine, and so... They're continuing with these uh, operations now for the Baltics. And so do you think that some kind of Russian incursion is viewed as inevitable, or is this just an abundance of caution, do you think, this upping of defenses? Well, it's probably somewhere in between. No one uh, thinks that a Russian invasion is inevitable. 
But the difference between uh, the attitude in the Baltic states and Western Europe is striking. Everyone in the Baltic states is aware of the risk. It's something commonly spoken about. In fact, uh, a senior foreign ministry official in Lithuania said, if an ATM cash machine malfunctions, people will commonly curse the Kremlin, blaming it for some sort of hybrid cyber warfare attack. In other words, the societal concern in the Baltics can kind of go overboard. But that said, the fear is very real, and uh, the general feeling is that this is not just an abundance of caution, but real measures that do need to be taken based on the history of what Russia has done in recent years and historically over past generations. Benjamin, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. More than ever, drag acts are breaking into the mainstream. Drag is really um, uh, gluing shit to your body to express uh, to to express yourself or to express an idea or or uh, to perform in a fantasy that lives in you but is not applied to you. Sharon Needles is an American drag queen. In 2012, she won RuPaul's Drag Race, a reality competition show that's been a breakout hit. It's won nine Emmys, and it's brought drag to new audiences. Drag queens, uh, before RuPaul's Drag Race, you saw them at midnight in a, in a smoky pub uh, performing on a small stage. Now it's, um, now it's in every living room uh, around the world. Now the show is set to launch in Britain, where drag has already found increasing popularity. I went to Drag World, which was Europe's biggest convention of drag acts, um, in a big hall in London. Tom Rowley is a Britain correspondent for The Economist. I walked through the pink carpet, and my eyes were drawn straight to a 10-foot-tall silver stiletto. And once I got past that particular attraction, I had to choose between all the people sort of putting on wigs and selling fishnet tights, and a rather sort of well-chiseled man wearing nothing much at all apart from a pair of uh, Y-fronts in, in rainbow colours. There were all kinds of performers there, both British and American drag acts, quite a lot from the American show RuPaul's Drag Race. There were people called Donna Trump, Poppycock, Rococo Chanel. The puns actually rival some of our puns in The Economist. Let's wind way back in history. How did drag even get started? I think men have loved putting on tights for, for centuries now. In the 18th century, there were men all over London who liked nothing more than to dress up as women. They were called mollies. And they would go about the place sort of exchanging japery with other similarly attired men, saying, how are you, you saucy queen? That sort of thing. By the 20th century, this had sort of spread to the underground gay scene. And so drag became a mainstay both in America and Britain, of gay bars and clubs. But this was really sort of off the beaten track, often sort of dingy underground bars where Dave might put on some lippy on a Friday night and, and, and play bingo with 50 quite large blokes. It certainly wasn't what it is now, which is part of the cultural mainstream. 
How do you mean? How has it become more mainstream? It's pure numbers, really. I mean, 10,000 people were there at Drag World. In America, RuPaul's Drag Race is huge. It's gone from a very niche sort of gay-focused channel to a mainstream audience. There's now going to be a British version made by the BBC, which will start in October. One of the judges from the American show will be on Strictly Come Dancing, which is one of the the highlights of uh, Britain's cultural calendar. And uh, incredibly, it's not just for gay fans anymore. It's it's sort of for everyone and and particularly popular among sort of young straight women. So the organiser of Jag World told me that his events see two-thirds of fans are girls between 16 and 21. So when you were at Drag World, did you meet some of these women? What did what did they tell you about what they like about drag? In a word, makeup. They're inspired by these outlandish takes on dressing up and, and putting makeup on that these drag acts perform with. So a lot of beauty brands were there cashing in on this market. And I think it's not so much that women wanted to go out looking exactly like these drag queens, but it was more almost like a a fancy dress in a shop window. You look at that and you think, I'll be inspired by that rather than I'll actually wear that. And similarly, I think they like the idea of just a really broad range of what it means to be a woman, not this sort of narrow, restrictive idea that you might see in a glossy fashion magazine, but the idea that you can be anyone and who you want to be and and still be a wonderful woman. A glamorous one, even. A glamorous one, yes, indeed. And what about the sort of the old fans, the drag acts, the the drag fans who were there all along before it became a mainstream affair? What do they make of all this? I was sort of surprised. I was expecting to hear this sort of refrain of cultural appropriation and and, and hands off our wigs. But, But actually, no, they were rather pleased with it. Actually, one said to me that it seemed to him to sum up society going from a toleration of gay culture to an embrace of it, which which struck me as an interesting idea. One man I spoke to, Brad Williams, who was there with his partner, both business and romantic, selling uh, fake eyelashes, told me that before it was, here's a cookie cutter, fit in. Now to fit in, you almost have to be different. Tom, thank you very much for coming in. Thanks, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.